Hello and welcome to the Behind the Artist podcast with Park West Gallery. I'm Gallery Director Morris Shapiro. If you'd like to view works of the artists I'm interviewing and learn more about them, please visit our podcast site with links to more content at parkwestgallery.com forward slash podcast. International art dealer Park West Gallery is proud to present our new podcast series, Behind the Artist. Each episode will be talking to popular contemporary artists to learn the stories and inspiration behind their extraordinary artwork and fascinating careers. Inspired as a child by Leonardo's famous large format drawing of the Virgin and St. Anne in the British National Gallery, the figurative artist Peter Nixon is one of the most thoughtful and articulate artists I've ever known. Peter's paintings are lush, they're lucid and consistently beautiful, and this of course is supported by his legions of enthusiastic collectors all over the world. His work reflects an elegant and sophisticated kind of contemporary quality while at the same time paying homage to the masters who came before him and have served as his greatest inspirations. With the publication of Peter's recent book, Music and Memory, his fame has taken yet another step forward, and in this segment he candidly discusses his diligent 40-plus year pathway to success, his revealing views in the art of the past and of our contemporary times, along with some insightful glimpses into his creative process and the power of content in his artistic vision, which is fascinating. This is Behind the Artist. It's no frills, just real and deep conversation. I'm Maura Shapiro, and I hope you enjoy this journey into the life and art of Peter Nixon. So Peter, uh, I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to uh, doing this interview. You know, you and I have been friends now for many years, and every time we get together, we have some amazing conversations about art and about life and good stuff. So I've really, really been anxious to do this one. So thanks for coming. No, the pleasure's mine. Really nice to have you here with us. I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about was the idea of when you first realized you were going to be an artist. Yeah. I know you have that story about the Leonardo drawing, which I'd like you to tell. But was it before that that you had the sense you were going to become an artist? Yes. I mean, uh, um, another story that I tell quite frequently is uh, it was um, when I was about five. I can't remember whether I had an interest in drawing before before then, but a school teacher saw a drawing that I'd done of my house, of my home, and she said, you should be an artist. And um, being a simple creature, I took her at her word and... Uh, went home and duly announced that I was going to be an artist. <laughs> you know, much to the, uh, you know, the chagrin of my parents. And, um, how did they I mean, that? I had no idea what, what a, an artist how, how was. How did your parents react to that? Well, they just thought he'll grow out of it, I'm <laughs> sure. You know, he'll, he'll get a sensible profession how one day. How'd that work out? <laughs> but as long as I can remember, I had an interest in drawing and an interest in art. I mean, this was uh, rural north of England in the late 1950s and there weren't images around that much but I remember a few books being around the house. Early memories were things like Gustave Doré, there was a book on that so I think that's where I got my love of detail from, mm -hmm. was all, right. those, all those angels in Dante's Inferno yeah, and, yeah. and things like that. Fantastic work to be inspired by as a child. Yeah. yeah, and another person was an illustrator called Arthur Rackham. There was a copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales, mm. and his pictures were, were simultaneously very strong, but really delicately coloured. 
And I think he had a big influence on my colouring. I mean, all this stuff was going in mm -hmm. very early. I was maybe seven or eight. Mm. And I was absorbing this stuff already. Mm -hmm. But the big build-up was to when I finally got taken to the National Gallery in London. We were going on a trip to London, so I wanted to, to go. We went to the Tate, we went to, to the National Gallery, did the, the tourist mm -hmm. thing. And how old were you? I was probably 10 or 11. Okay. And I saw the, the Virgin and Saint Anne by Leonardo da Vinci, which is about five by three feet. And it's a cartoon, uh, a preparatory drawing for the, the main painting. And it just blew me away. I mean, I'd never seen uh, an artwork as big as that mm -hmm. before. Yeah. And the depth and the complexity of the drawing, it, it was, it mm -hmm. was like a challenge. Mm -hmm. It was. When you go back and you see that drawing now, how do you feel about it? Oh, it's a, I get a strange frisson every time, you know, it's <laughs> stepping back in time. <laughs> it's nice that you can go visit it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I Maybe, mean, yeah. It's, it's still in great condition as right. well. And they've, yeah. and they've got the, it's, uh, it's next to a, the, the, the Virgin on the Rocks, I think, right. which is a, right. a completed Leonardo picture, so yeah. you can yeah. contrast the That's two. That's in the uh, Louvre, Virgin on the Rocks. Isn't it in this the is, the, this yeah. is another version. Oh, another version, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Were you the kid in school that illustrated your book reports, you know, and did the murals for the wall and the whole thing? Were you tapped in, in school to be the artist kid? Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. And so you made a decision early to pursue your education as an artist. Yes, right? yeah, right? yeah. So when you graduated, what, high school, what did, what did you do then? I went to art college. Uh-huh. Was that the Blackpool? Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay, and you graduated with a degree there, four-year yeah, degree? Yeah, Uh-huh. What was it like? It was great. It, it, it was um, it had a strong tradition of um, figure drawing there, and uh, three very good figure drawing teachers who were very inspiring. And I, th I think uh, life drawing classes were three times a week or more if you wanted them. And I never really wanted to to go anywhere else. I have to say that my subject was there from the start. It was the human figure. Yeah and the complexity of working it out and making it work on, on paper has, has kind of been my fascination ever mm -hmm. since. Mm -hmm. you study anatomy? Not in that much depth, right. uh -huh. but there was long observation classes. A guy called Ewan Aglow was very popular when I was at college. He was a, uh, an English artist, and he came from a, a school that was started by another guy called William Coldstream. And they had this method of drawing where it was the kind of the old cliched thing of using your thumb, measuring with your thumb like this, and you'd make a mark on the piece of paper where the knee was, where the elbow was, and then you draw your figure. You gradually build up this kind of framework right. in the picture. And I always liked it because you've got a wonderful decorative pattern mm -hmm. as well of all these marks, these X's. On, on, on your picture before you built uh -huh. it up. Uh -huh. So it was almost like an abstract thing before you, before it got made in, made flesh, if made you like. flesh, yeah, interesting. Was that when you began to do etching in school? Or I was that did a little, little bit little, of little, etching. Yeah. No, etching I only did later after I left college. And then when you left college, what did you do? Well, I had a few kind of jobs just to keep me going mm -hmm. while I was there. And I painted in the evening mm. quite a lot got into some group exhibitions and things like that and 
for a while, sort of, I was living in this half, half in one world, half in another. Mm-hmm. And eventually I, I heard through friends that there was a, a company, that uh, um, a gallery that, that ran an etching atelier in London called London Contemporary Art. And they were looking for artists. And I uh, went along and they, they said yes. Signed you up? Yeah. It was a look, lucky break. Yeah. And, and a young age too. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. And it was, the company was just starting out and they, everybody was finding their feet. So mm-hmm. there was, uh, it was a time. interesting bohemian times. Yes, I yes. Interesting the distinction between, I, I presume, the UK art schools and the American art schools. I think you're fortunate in the sense that you were able to go to a school that was rigorous and they really wanted to teach you technique. Yeah. You know, when yeah. I went to art school, they'd laugh at you if you wanted to learn to draw. You know, yeah. It was all about, you know, conceptualism. You know, I had one teacher that painted with a hose on cement and it evaporated and that was the art, you know. Yeah. yeah. I, actually, I actually paid to go to school there, you know, paid tuition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that was but, it was nice for you to have that opportunity to yeah. get, you know, get steeped in the fundamentals. But when I, you know, the Blackpool part was the foundation. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to another art college after that, and there were a lot of people trying to talk me out of being a figurative artist. Yeah, talk you out of aesthetics. Like, Nobody does that anymore, <laughs> they say. You know? yeah. And it's, it's, it's all been done. And I said, well, I, I haven't done it. You know? And I think that, that if you're going to do something for 10 hours in a day, you've got to love it. I mean, and, and it's this idea of having to fit into a scheme you know art history says you've got to be you know we're all conceptualists now so you've got to be a conceptualist yeah yeah yeah. you just think no you know also the influence on the on the teachers on young people it's so strong yeah push them in that direction yeah mold them you know yeah and so many of them in my case were frustrated artists you know there's they, they couldn't find you know an opportunity to sell their work develop their work and so they, they took it out of the students pretty much yeah yeah you know, that's why i gravitated toward at least the art history department because you could learn something you know, yeah aesthetics and you know philosophy and stuff yeah i mean i don't know how difficult it is for artists young artists today coming out i mean you know having to have a, a cv and and presenting yourself now and, and videos presumably but in those days, it was kind of, I remember our, our lecturers sneering and saying, well, you know, you might get a, some sort of paid employment at the end of this if you want that kind of thing, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, we artists just exist on air. You know? When you were in school, I remember you telling the story about the life drawing classes and you would go to dance sessions. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah, that, that, was, that was, they didn't happen that often. They were quite special. And we had one particular teacher who would uh, lecture, who would um, take us to these dance classes. And these people would be working out, you know, they'd, they'd be going through their exercises and their stretches. And we would do this kind of Degar quick sketch routine. And after quite a few years of drawing or painting a static person sitting or standing in a room, this was a bit of a, a revelation to me and I thought people are full of energy they're not statues and what my art at the time was missing was this feeling of energy and I I wanted to to create that and I remember I became quite obsessed with a painting by Duchamp 
of the the new Ooh, descending the staircase yeah. descending the staircase mm -hmm. and, and all those sort of that patterning mm -hmm. that he had round the main figure and which of course came from cubism you know so i i developed an interest in that and i remember at first doing these drawings that had kind of fan-like movements coming off the figure and they graduated into and i thought well I need to get some sort of three-dimensional feeling into this. And these shapes gradually kind of, I tried to create them so that they looked like they were receding in space, but still being a sort of abstract pattern, if you like. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the sketch style evolved from. So it was very, fairly early in your evolution that you already had this concept, this, this style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Nat developed naturally on its own, the impetus coming from those dance classes. That's really neat. Uh, so you developed that style. Were you making etchings initially with London Contemporary Art in that style? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. Do you still have any of those etchings? I'd, I'd love to see some. I, I, I may have somewhere yeah. buried in a portfolio yeah. in the attic. I uh -huh. think. Well, when we first met you, you were uh, when you came to Park West. You were working in that style almost principally. I know you had some a movement back and forth between that style and some of the more elaborate paintings. Yeah but we first brought you into the Park West world with that wonderful uh, sketch style, is what you call it, the lyrical sketch style. Do you still make works that look like that today? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. Uh, you evolved into another style, which is what I guess you call your more elaborate style. Yeah, right? yeah. How did that happen? Was that a natural progression again? It was, again, doing the etching. The, the, one of the things that I really loved about etching was the textures. And that you can you can create these these wonderful textures using all, all sorts of acid resist techniques and various tricks that you learn as you go along. And um, I wanted to introduce some of this into the painting, and it didn't really go with this free flowing style that I had, which was all kind of very airy and very light, very ethereal. So I I hit on this. I went to Venice and saw these wonderful Titians and Veronese's and Bellini's and the ornateness in those and the rich colours. And I thought, well, I, I really would like to do something like this. And so that's where it was born from. And at first it was kind of like a, an amalgam of the two styles, if you like. There were decorative elements in the sketch pictures, which succeeded to, in various degrees until it, it kind of evolved into two separate styles, if you like. Now they cross over. They cross over. I mean, sometimes I can start any picture now and think it can either stay as a sketch or I can develop it into a, a fully blown, ornate picture. That's nice to be able to have that option. Yeah, you know, yeah. With your work, yeah, yeah. You've talked before about how you come up with your ideas. Because they're so fascinating to me, especially when you develop these wonderful sort of tributes to your influences, the artists that you admire. Yes. And they take on this really beautiful narrative kind of quality to them. You said to me once that you, you read a lot of things kind of simultaneously. You read a book for a while and set it down, pick up another book for a while. You'll find things that, you know, you say that I'll use that someday in the future and you kind of pluck it, put it away. Yeah. Pluck yeah. it out, put it away someplace. Talk about how a painting evolves in terms of the, of the content of the painting? It will start with a very simple idea. It's all sorts of different things. And I'm fascinated by the process. Um, 
because I don't know. It, I feel like it, it exists outside of me. I, I, I <laughs> pose the question, and then at some point my brain comes up with the answer, or my memory comes up with the answer. Uh -huh. And so it, it's really interesting how that how that happens, and that sometimes becomes part of the picture. And as you say, I'll read, I'll read a book, or I'll be looking at something, you know, looking at a picture, and it'll trigger something, and 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 I'll take that away, and um, just evolve a story around it. And uh, as I say, books, and things I hear on the radio, things I see when I'm walking around outside, anything, anything that sort of catches my eye goes in a little notebook. Don't know what, what its usefulness is going to be, but you think sometime in the future I'm going to, um, I'm going to use that. And the opportunity presents itself. It, it might take a year, but eventually it does come round to it. And... Um, also, I use the computer sometimes. I've got a whole library of images that I, you know, I'll trawl the internet, and I just say, "Oh, that's interesting." Put it away. Yeah, it, it. What is quite nice about having this scrolling through this library mm -hmm. is that you get two images playing off against each other. Right. So you'll see uh, an image in the top corner and one in the bottom corner, and you think. There's a relationship between those two, mm -hmm. and I don't know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. And I had a great one the other day. The, I went to see the, um, the Picasso exhibition, the, the one that's on at the Tate Modern in London now, which is his kind of, I forgot what the title is, The Glorious Year, 1932. Wow, um, neoclassic period. Yes, yeah. yeah. And there's a sculpture, the woman in the garden. Mm -hmm. I know the one. So, yeah, yeah the, the metal sculpture. sculpture, sculpture, yeah, sculpture yeah. 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 Um, I had that at the top and side of the picture at the bottom was a an ampersand you know they yeah, right. but an old-fashioned one uh -huh. and I thought I could see a, a, a relationship in the yeah. shape between uh -huh. the two yeah and I evolved a, I just went on a, a kind of riff uh -huh. on this and I evolved a whole story about a pollinaire and <laughs> uh, you know that fanned out from this it was great <laughs> and I was sitting there making notes for ages nice. I mean I haven't actually painted that picture yet but it's in your head. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know how I'm going to paint it. I mean, yeah. that is another thing. You they just did. It, it starts. In your imagination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, oh, by the way, for our listeners, Apollinaire was a friend of Picasso's. He was a poet and one of Picasso's first yeah. friends when he came yeah. to Paris. Yeah. Died uh, after World War One. Yeah. When you're working on a painting, do you sometimes set the painting aside and just go in a different direction and pick the painting back up later? Or do you take a painting and finish it all away? I usually I'll do up to eight at once. At once, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Because I I paint in layers, right? And layers have to dry, you know, on the mm. practical level. And right. also, if you work intensively, uh, sometimes you stop seeing the picture if you're staring at it for days and days. You you stop being able to see how to resolve it. So I'll put it to one side, and usually when you get it out again, you know, a week later. The, you, it's like looking at a, a, a fresh picture and hopefully the solution will come to you mm -hmm. or failing that I'll get another picture out and put, it, put the two next to each other and say right why is that one working and this one isn't and you know they, they kind of feed into each other so. nice that's nice to have that option yeah yeah, yeah. 
So eight paintings at a time, pretty much. Yeah. Not up, always. Up not always. Yeah. And, and, and again, I don't like a, a, a rigid work routine. I mean, a, a question I'm frequently asked is, how long does a painting take you? And it's, you know, I'll give I'll give people a, a, a ballpark time, but I don't like to think about a, how long a painting is going to take. You know, this painting is this size, so it needs to take. You know, however many hours. days yeah. you know it's done when it's done and you know the little time management guy in the back of my head <laughs> says you know move it along <laughs> and then the other guy in my head <laughs> says no we're going to do some more detail here now <laughs> how do you know when a painting's finished that's a question i love to ask in these interviews um it's it's a strange moment i usually say right it's finished mm -hmm. and then work for another few hours on it Right. You know, you can feel the end coming. Yeah. And then I'll... I don't, it's, it's usually a random moment. I'm, at the end, you're usually filling in tiny little details, correcting little mm -hmm. bits, and you're just doing that. And then suddenly you put the brush down. Mm -hmm. and, just and instinctively you know it's Well, done. you hope it's done. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're never done. They're, yeah. they're as, never finished. Yes, yeah, Matisse said, right? Yeah. And I think, as I've said before, my wife is the, the person that uh, she has to come and look at it and she'll, she has a very good eye and she'll tell me mm -hmm. whether things need doing to it or, wh or whether it's done. <laughs> but that. it's good to get that fresh perspective. Oh, yes, yeah. most definitely, yeah. yeah. Especially, you know, someone with a good eye you yeah. know, who knows you and knows your work. So well, she's, a, she's an artist as well. Right, so. right, right. She works in jewellery, right? She works in jewellery. Uh -huh. She's a, an art teacher uh -huh. as well. Yeah. And very good draftsman. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Nice to have that ability to have the dialogue. Um, do you ever uh, just give up on a painting? No, no, no I never have. They, they become yeah. something else. Yeah. I mean, one solution is to turn it upside down and use what you've got there as texture yeah. and oh. just paint something else over it. Right. Or it's a challenge to find a solution and sometimes a problem can become a creative thing in itself. You know, you, you have to try and invent a way of getting out of this, this corner that you've painted yourself <laughs> into, you know. Yeah. And I like things, I love things like that. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's another way of, uh, of being creative. And keeping yourself interested. Yeah, I never, never want to be sure of what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by artists' ability to know when not to continue so they overwork something. Yeah. You're finding that balance between yeah. when it's finished and when you overwork it, because you know when you overwork it, but I don't know how you guys, how you Well, I, that I'm, I have two things going on. I'm both a, a bit of an egg polisher. What do you mean? Uh, well, somebody who gilds the lily, you know, uh -huh. if left right. to their own devices. Right. But I also like art that is quite gestural. Mm -hmm. So I've got these two conflicting Poles. sides, mm -hmm. or they're working off each other all mm -hmm. the time. And I like to see a little bit of imperfection right. in a painting. I mean, the the viewer might not be able to see it, but I can, you know, I can see it. And I like to like to try and leave something from every stage of the painting. You know, you can cover up all all your initial marks and make everything perfect within the picture. But the idea is to show the process somehow through through what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you want the excitement of those first marks. You want some of those 
left in the picture. Yeah, I noticed that in your work, you see a lot of the evidence, the, the pentimenti, you know, underneath yeah. the painting. And then also, when you're finished with the painting, sometimes you go back in with the pencil, like a dark pencil or some yeah. you know, dark pigment or whatever, add the drawing back into it, you know, pulling the, the underlayers and the overlayers, yeah. kind of yeah. pulling, pushing and pulling. Because I, I think it probably goes back to the Leonardo, that the, what I loved about that picture was you could see the construction of it. It was like, it was like looking through a, a web of marks, you know, yeah. you could see where he'd started this picture and built it out. Yeah. It's like a, a, a diagram almost. Uh-huh. So fascinating that you have that experience from being so young and still implanted yeah. so deeply into, yeah. into your, your imagination and your work. It's, that's just so cool. So I know you love music. I know you listen to tons and tons of music. Um, you were kind enough to ask me to write the introduction to your book, uh, Music and Memory. Yeah. Yeah, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you. Wonderful introduction. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And I, I talked in the book about you know, the fact that you like such progressive music. I mean, you listen to really, in many cases, very avant-garde, yeah. you know, uh, instrumental music. Yes. And I, f- I found that such a dichotomy between, you know, as I called it, your very fetching art, your very, you know, very beautiful art, and this, like, sometimes crazy music that you listen yeah. to, yeah. you know, yeah. this Captain Beefheart-ish kind of you know, stuff you listen to. Where does that come from? Where, where, where did you develop that, uh, that passion for such uh, progressive and avant-garde music? I've always liked the quirky. I, <laughs> you know, I'd, 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 I'd love a, a, a straightforward melody, but I also like dissonance as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I like people that push, push the envelope. So, and also, as you know, with a, a lot of jazz musicians, they play like they don't care. This is what they're going to... This is what they're going to play. Exactly. And if you don't like it, then, and I, and I admire that. I, I I I like that. And I think when I'm painting, I pick up on the energy of the music and the rhythm. You know, and you find yourself almost mixing into. It's not quite like. It's not quite. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I like to try and, and and paint in a musical fashion to give the brush marks an energy that, that, that you pick up from the music. Yeah, your painting does feel very spontaneous, you know, your brushwork. Your yeah. brushwork is very energetic and spontaneous, yes. yeah. which is interesting because the paintings are so meticulously composed, you know, they're very carefully composed. Yes. But at the same time, they have a freshness, they don't feel stale at all. You're working now on a series of paintings that you call postcards. Yes. Talk about those, fascinating. You showed me two of them today. I just had this idea of... Uh, Again, I can't remember what it was triggered. Po- possibly I saw a, a, the format of an old postcard and just liked the idea of it. And I think what triggered the, the, the idea was um, the notion of putting stamps on there. And again, it, it fits in with the little insets that I put into my right. paintings. Yes. And, I, and immediately the first postcard was to Picasso. Mm-hmm. And um, I immediately thought of the bulls that he'd done, the... Uh, if you remember, he went from a conventional bulls. drawing yeah. Yeah. and it progressed the all the way to yeah. a, a, a kind of stripped-down cubist yeah. bull at the end. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll do a sequence like that. Then I thought, I'll give, do the same trick. I've done four so far, Picasso, Matisse, um, Rembrandt, and Titian. Titian. Yeah. So, and each one, it also, also, somewhere in the process of the idea, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to, to combine writing because I'd done some writing for the book, which I enjoyed. Which is excellent, by the way. 
Thank the rain you. is wonderful. And so I thought, well, there's an opportunity to do some more writing and actually put it into a painting, which I thought was, uh, was quite exciting. I think the whole idea of, of writing a postcard to the artist, from you to the artist, is, is fascinating. Yeah. That whole notion yeah. is fascinating. So I, it's more like a love letter, really, than a, a postcard. <laughs> I, I'm just telling them you know, what a big influence they've been, uh -huh. and I admire this aspect of your work and that aspect of your work. Right. Um, we just got back from the Picasso Barcelona Museum on, on this cruise that we just finished uh, today. And uh, I love to go up and look at the paintings he did on the Velázquez theme, you know, the Las Caminas, yes. those yes. paintings. Uh, there's something like 70 of those paintings, different sizes. And he, I remember reading about he'd be in the studio and they'd come up and they'd put their ear up to the door and they'd hear him screaming and yelling at, you know, at the painting. Really? Yelling at Velazquez, you know. So this, this notion of reaching through time, across time, um, is so fascinating, you know, to take an artist whom you admire and create a dialogue with them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert Henry, the great art, art teacher, art writer, said, you know, that uh, the, the brotherhood of artists cannot be separated by time or space, you know. Everyone belongs to that brotherhood, which is a really beautiful thought. Let's talk about those four artists. What, what is it about those four artists that you find so profound that you are willing to take all the time to make, create an homage, write a postcard to them? Let's start, start with Picasso. We're on the theme. Just kind of the uh, fascinating life, the ultimate protean artist. You know, I mean, he's everybody's cliched idea of uh, what, what a, a I suppose an artist of the 20th century is like, and I, I guess he's a person that we know more about. I mean, he had such a colourful life that his uh, reams and reams have been written about him. And I'm, I don't know about you, I never get tired of reading about him. Never. And um, I was just about to, I'm thinking of going back and reading Francois Gillot's book again, because I just read an interview with her. She's 94 yeah. and still alive. Still alive, yeah. And um, another fascinating period in his life. And I think it's the, the energy and the invention of Picasso that um, really inspires me. That, that I, idea of, again, you know, the variations. He takes a, a conventional drawing of a ball and then plays with it and stretches it and bends nature to his will. And uh, even though I don't do that so much in my work, it's the inspiration, the feeling that uh, I get from that, the, uh, the, the challenge of doing that, if you like. I might, I might do it in a different way. You know, I'll take an idea and pull it this way and that. And I think that's what I get from him. They're, they're all fascinating. They're, Rembrandt is, if somebody said to me, if you were going to a desert island, and the only painting you could only take one painting. It would probably be a Rembrandt because there are, they are so profoundly moving. You can walk into a room, and it's like um, a physical presence in the room, seeing one of one of his portraits. But then you walk up to it, and it just explodes into brush marks when you get close. And you yeah. step back, and it's a person again. And it's this <laughs> intense gaze over five hundred years that says. You know, I, I was alive once too. Uh -huh. And the bonus is they're beautifully painted. You, the more you look at them, the more you can see. You know, even, even though they're, they're dark, 
there you can see little bits of, apparently he used to use um, old paint, he'd scrape it off his palette and use it as a sort of base and then start to paint over the top. So you would get all these little glints of blue and red Oh, and green, you know, yeah. you think this is a brown painting at first, now, yeah. but then when you go up close, there's all these little accents all mm -hmm. over them, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I love that technique. Yeah, I have a fond memory of you and I in the Hermitage. Yes, we broke away from the group, listening right. to the, the Russian guide, and we went into the Rembrandt gallery. It was yeah. just such a delight. And, I know. You know, I'm, I'm looking at these paintings, thinking you're going to be, you know, focused on all the technical aspects of the painting. You were like into the spirit of the art. You were like yeah. The, yeah. the liveliness of his brush, you know, and the, and the, the feeling and power in the paintings. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, what a great collection. I huh? mean, he is the the ultimate brush master. Yeah, and when you look at a portrait from his 30s and compare it to ones that he did in his 60s it's it's kind of all artists seem to go looser when they get older if you think of people like Titian and Picasso yeah, yeah. you know the brush marks get looser right. and more expressive as they get older uh -huh. and I think Rembrandt was the most successful of those his latter style when apparently at the time, everybody was going more and more detailed. Right. That, that was the, the fashion. He the started out like that, yeah. but he eventually became the grand old man of, of Dutch art mm -hmm. and just said, this is the way I'm painting. I yeah. paint loosely and sketchily now, yeah. but I will paint as compelling a portrait mm -hmm. as, 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 as anybody giving, giving all the details yeah. within a picture. Yeah. I remember reading that he was you know, he was the fashionable painter for portraits of a particular generation. Those, the Dutch people that were becoming very wealthy, but they're also very conservative yes. and very, very re religious, I guess is the proper term for spiritual religious. So they wanted, you know, to be able to show people that they were wealthy enough to commission Rembrandt to paint a portrait, but at the yeah. same time be very, very, you know, quiet and yes. modest and, you know, and, you know conservative. And then the next generation, their children, didn't want that at all. They wanted the Italians, they wanted the French, they wanted to be, you know, the yeah. next generation of different influences from Europe. Colorful. So that's probably where the more detailed, more classic-oriented yeah. paintings, I guess, and Rembrandt fell out of style. You yeah. know, that was one reason yeah. why he went bankrupt. Yeah. But we benefited from that. I, I think the later paintings are more interesting than, the, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the conservative portraits are fabulous. I mean, nobody could do fur or lace or velvet better than he could. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it, I mean, you can, it's, they're very tactile. You can almost feel these things. But later on, he could suggest that with a, 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 broad, yeah. a broad brush mark. And you could feel, feel, the, same thing. feel the weight of the guy's coat. You know, right, so. right, right. How do you feel when you look at your early pieces? If you look at a, a painting now from the 1980s, it's a, how does um, it strike you? It's interesting. It's, a, it's always a... Okay, there's always something to learn from it. It's, mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting to see where you've developed from. Um, whether you can learn anything from it, I don't know. And you, and you always say, oh, oh yes, I, I remember what I was into at the time. Because things change all the time. You know, your, your influences and your likes and dislikes. And, you, and it's interesting to see, well, you, can, you think, oh, well, that's where the ornate style was starting to develop there. Mm. That picture maybe wasn't that successful, but Interesting. The, I took that idea, that little bit there in uh -huh. the corner of that picture and made it into 
the next one which did uh -huh. work uh -huh. so it's nice to see it as a kind of ca a working catalogue if you like yeah obviously you, being an artist as long as you have gives you that rare opportunity many many people don't have that they can't go back and look at their work from yeah. 30 years ago yeah. right and see yeah. the evolution of it. that's a beautiful thing okay let's talk about Matisse Matisse is a fascinating character and I think you and I talked about him before and yeah. you yeah and you said I have trouble with Matisse. yeah I was yeah. gonna say yeah. you have a little uh -huh. bit of difficulty yeah. With yeah. Matisse. there's something about his work I admire it and I I appreciate his innovation and I certainly appreciate his, his color his calibration color is amazing but there's just I can't connect to there his was work a, somehow yeah, yeah there's a, a tension in mm -hmm. there and I find it I find it quite fascinating that he was this painter of um, languid relaxed, sensuous pictures, and yet he was so serious a person. He was, when you see photographs of him, he's like a scientist, he's got a, yeah. a white coat on. Right. And um, apparently, reading about him, apparently mm -hmm. he was a very, very serious person, you know, talking about art, very serious about his philosophy. And I think that unlike Picasso, who um, kind of was fated as a child prodigy from a very early age and he was destined to to be a great artist even though Picasso had his failures you know he went to Paris I think four times and went home again you know because right. he, he couldn't couldn't make it happen but Matisse was um, came from a background that was not well it was kind of artistic his family his family were into textiles mm -hmm. and he um, his father didn't want him to be an artist, and he became very good academic artist. Went off to study seriously, figure drawing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then had this inspiration. Met with uh, some of the other Forbes, and wanted to start painting this, what people considered crazy paintings at the time. And I remember reading that he and his, he was very short of money at the time, and he and his wife were scraping all these canvases down with academic pictures on them, scraping them all off so that he could create fourth pictures at the time when these things could have been buying food for them. And I think that filters into his art. He always said that, that I wanted to create a, an art of ease that's like a, like a an comfortable armchair. An armchair. Yeah. Yeah. But he himself, I don't think, was a, a very relaxed character. <laughs> you know? so, and Picasso used to tease him and say, you know, Matisse will do 15 versions of the same subject and go back to the first one he did, you know. So <laughs> he had to go through that struggle, you know. <laughs> Whereas Picasso would just be spontaneous, you yeah. know. He'd, he'd, he'd do it straight off and then he'd turn it into something else. Whereas Matisse would, no, I've got to take this to perfection. But I always find that, that Matisse's are, you have to see them in reality. They, their impact when you um, yeah, in a book when you, you see them, you, you don't get them. it yeah. in, from yeah. a book. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the scale too. Yeah, yeah. And when you, uh, as you know, I do little insets in the mm -hmm. painting sometimes. And when you, if you paint a Matisse, you realise how beautifully balanced they are. When you when you have to put them together yourself, and the way he's placed the colours around to complement and balance each other, that um, you realise what a brilliant technician he was. And then tried to make it look easy, tried to make it look like it was languid and relaxed, but it was uh, the, the result of, of a, a sort of scientific approach. 
you don't feel that the the paintings are painstaking at all when you look at them. No, they have a very restful kind of open feeling to them. Yeah, in most cases, yeah. But as I say, he was uh, he'd paint the whole day and then he'd go yeah. no and just scrape the whole thing wow. off and, and start again. Wow. Titian. Yes. Well, I've been reading a book on Titian for a long time. It's uh, it's very thick. Uh, Sheila Hale, and it goes into all the background around the time, and he's. Um, kind of uh, one of these uh, wonderful figures like Rubens who presided over his time. You know, he was in the golden age of Venice and uh, he had these great rivals, Tintoretto and Veronese. And he just seemed to be able to glide through life. I mean, it was, uh, his, it, it, there's something magisterial about his, his works, I think. Apparently he, Hardly ever did a preparatory sketch. He he painted straight onto the onto the canvas. And when you see them, when you see the 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 detail and the the accuracy of these pictures, I mean, the guy must have had fantastic skills. But he was a very successful artist. Ran a ran a studio. Um, was uh, commissions from doges and kings and things like that. And was just lived to, to a great age which was unusual in those days I think it was only he uh, died of the plague eventually but he was in his 80s 80s yeah yeah, yeah. Um, his paintings are, are just breathtaking they're, they're incredibly theatrical and they're the sort of things you look at and you think I, I can't understand how a human being could have done that right humbling experience. It is a humbling experience. <laughs> and big as well. They are so... I mean, I know he had assistants. Yeah. You know, the whole family were involved yep. in, in, in painting the pictures. But you just think, God, this guy. And reading the book, you realise that he wouldn't be hurried by anybody either. I don't care if you're a, a king or the pope or whoever. Mm -hmm. This picture will be ready for you when, when it's ready. When, when it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, Saint Sebastian in the Hermitage that we saw. It, it almost looks like an Impressionist painting. It was a very late painting. Yes. Did he have some physical ailments or something in the very end of his life? Do you know? Re Not that I can no? recall. No. I, I forgot what it was, but there was some reason that he couldn't paint as clearly as he had previously. And the painting is so beautiful. Maybe so dramatic. arthritis, because be arthritis, there are a lot. Yeah. In, he yeah. seemed to use his fingers quite a lot. Right, right. And which was quite strange for a guy who was so precise. Precise, yeah. This painting it looks like an Impressionist painting. It's yes, like a, yeah. You know, a precursor to Impressionism, you know, 500 years ago. You know, crazy. And again, you know, you've, you've got to be thankful for these people doing mm -hmm. this because it seems like something grows out of that. You know, as you say, the, the Impressionists. And I'm, there's a possibility that Monet might have looked at them and thought, yeah. I, li I like the quality of these brush marks. Um, maybe I can do something with this. I was surprised to see so much impasto in Rembrandt's paintings too. Yes. For example, the Night Watch. I went up and took a photograph of the drum. Yeah. And it's thick paint on top of it. Yeah. That's yeah. Seventeenth-century impasto. That's extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? For that, yeah. That amount of surface texture. You let the brush strokes sit oh, on top of the Oh, they really are quite. Like yeah, they're quite mottled yeah. up close sometimes. Yeah, I was really surprised. The, the father of impasto. I mean, the, the, again, for a theatrical experience, the night watch is just, yeah. it's overwhelming. I, you know, I, I stood with my mouth open for at least 45 <laughs> minutes trying to, trying to check every detail in the picture. Uh -huh. You know, there's so much going on right. in there, but really casual as well right. at the time. You know, the, yeah. the militia 
at the time had commissioned these paintings and they used to be very dull where every every person in, in had to be given equal status so there are all these men striking heroic poses in line you know and then yeah. rembrandt produces this rabble you know that, that's in a kind of an, an arrowhead in the yeah. picture you know exploding and, you know the canvas. guns going on know. you know pointing off everywhere you know right right well that's why they hated it <laughs> well the, 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 there's kind of conflicting um theories on that that, really? that, that they yep. the two main guys in the in the um in the militia the two leaders apparently commissioned prints of it oh. later on uh -huh. so they they think that maybe that wasn't rembrandt's downfall necessarily uh -huh. that mm -hmm. uh, but I, mean, I think it was a painting that, that that took him it was very difficult it took him a long time and i think there was what it was i think there were certain people in the background you know who were painted in the shadows who said well why am i not you know why am i not getting a prominent position you know there's a possibility that they might say well these two guys have paid more you know so they get the spotlight on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it was certainly uh a form of entertainment back then so yeah. going to the movies yeah looking at that painting for people in the 17th yeah. century you've got to see the movie i think we were talking about a guy called peter greenaway today which is um he's he did a movie called night watching which is about the painting of the night watch and he did a sort of companion documentary called uh, Rembrandt Jacques and it's a it's a complete f uh, folly but he finds 30 pieces of evidence within the painting that suggest a murder so it's like a visual detect I mean I'm sure it's all made up but he makes it very plausible it's great it really is you know there's a and he goes through all these individuals in the, the painting and saying what skullduggery they were up to and you know and somebody had to be bumped off because he was about to you know dish the dirt on this other guy you know and ruin trash his reputation you know. oh wonderful imaginations yeah people can oh, come up with stay a, with the theme like that and develop a yeah. you know a film theme, yeah. theme of it what will be the next postcards what it's a good question. About? I haven't, yeah. I haven't yeah. thought about that. Yeah, there's a few contenders. Who, who are the uh, contenders? Michelangelo could be one. Oh, that's I, interesting. I think would uh -huh. be would be quite good. And Leonardo probably. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you owe I mean, it to there's Leonardo, so much, right? so many images there that you can put into a right. a postcard. What about Michelangelo that fascinates you? I'd, I'd love that story about him. That he's uh, he wasn't a painter, and yet he created one of the greatest artworks ever, the Sistine Chapel. Uh, under duress right that the the pope made him do it yeah he was going to um, give it to raphael wasn't he yeah well yeah. he always threatened yeah. him i think yeah. you know he's younger he's better looking you know he doesn't charge as much as you do you know. <laughs> <laughs> the girls like him he can sing he can play the lute and well i think it was either that or or possible possible banishment or death as well he wanted to make the tomb didn't he he wanted to carve the the pope's tomb, pope's tomb. right but he made him climb the ladder and uh, paint the picture. And there are there are very few Michelangelo paintings around. You know, there's the Tondo, in Doni, the, in um, the Uffizi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought I thought that was his only easel painting. That's what it I was possibly. Told. Yeah. There's one in the there's an unfinished one in uh, in the National Gallery. Okay. As well, and yeah. you can see the underpainting in that. He oh. didn't even get as far as uh, oh. completing it. Yeah, but really didn't didn't like painting but 
obviously when he applied himself. But, uh, <laughs> and boy, did he apply himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But a big, you know, the, a man who advocated drawing, you know, it was all about uh, disegno rather than colori, you know, and right. uh, there was always this conflict going yes. on between these two different schools. Mm -hmm. One believed that you should draw everything out and design it first, and the other, the Titian school, where uh, you paint it straight onto the canvas. Right. And apparently the two of them met once. Titian and, and Michelangelo. Michelangelo? Uh -huh. um, Michelangelo said, well, he's very good, he said, but he'd be better if he drew if some he drew. more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So let's, let's keep playing this game because this is fun. If we talk about some artists and get your take on them. How about someone like uh, Gustav Klimt? Klimt was um, quite an amazing character as well. I mean, one thing that I learned about Klimt is that the, you, um, I always thought that his paintings were spontaneous, uh, but they were quite meticulously worked over. Now you think that they look sketchy, but apparently he used to do commissions and then go and take them back and say, I'd like to work a bit more on that. And he, he you know, even though the people had uh, commissioned it and bought and paid for it, he'd, he'd come and get it and take it back to the studio and do a little more work on it. Which I always think is a bit of a risky strategy, really, with a, an artist. And again, I've told this story before that if you give me one of my paintings back, it might not come back, you know, because I, I, like I had an, an instance where there, there was a, a painting had been slightly damaged on a, a Park West trip. And they said, could you, I had some paints with me, and they said, could you just get rid of that little scratch that's on the picture? And I, and I took it back to the cabin and painted out the little scratch. And then I thought, oh, the hair maybe needs to. And I, I, when they brought it down the next day, it was, it was different again. And they went, what have you done? And I said, still mine. It's my painting. Yeah, they never, they never end. They yeah. never finish. So yeah. people say, do you have your own paintings on the wall at home? And I, I can't. Having said that, there's nothing wrong with the way they are, but uh, as, as we were talking about the writing in the book, that you, you're never satisfied with, with something. There's always, there's always something else you can do. Yeah, you always feel like you could have done better. And then, of course, you, you go past the point of no return and there's a possibility you might spoil it by right. Right. overdoing it. Overworking it, yeah. Thank you for listening to Parkwest Gallery's Behind the Artist. To learn more about Parkwest Gallery's family of artists, visit us online at parkwestgallery.com or follow us on social media. You can subscribe to Behind the Artist on your favourite podcast app and be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes.